Welcome to Roadcase, the podcast that explores the live music experience. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Josh Rosenberg, and I'll be taking you on a journey through in-depth interviews with performers and key people in the industry to explore the magic of live music, how it can be totally transformative for both fans and performers, and we'll look at how they take it all out on the road. It's going to be a great ride, so here we go. Welcome back to Roadcase, everybody. I'm so psyched to be here this week. Uh, This is your host, Josh Rosenberg. And if you're new to Roadcase, welcome aboard. And if you are a regular listener, welcome back. Uh, We have Tristan, Nashville artist, here this week. um, And I'm really psyched to have her. This is the fourth episode of season two, episode number 46 overall. And I'm really psyched to be here. And thanks for joining me. Before we get started with the interview, I want to remind everybody, as I do every week, to support Roadcase, and you can do that in a number of different ways. Um, You can join the Roadcase community by following us on Instagram, uh, on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at RoadcasePod. Uh, we got a website, RoadcasePod.com. If you like email... I love getting emails. Shoot me an email at info at roadcasepod.com. I promise I'll get back to you. Send me comments on suggestions for guests, whatever you'd like. Uh, Start a conversation. Um, I'd love that. Um, Also, a great way to support Roadcase is to follow us on your favorite digital listening platform. You're probably on there right now. Uh, If you can subscribe to Roadcase, that's super helpful. And if you can rate and review uh, Roadcase, that's super duper helpful. So that would be absolutely awesome. So this week, as I said, we have Tristan with us. Tristan is, um, she is from Chicago originally, now lives in Nashville. She's, um, educated, well-rounded, insightful, sensitive, and fascinating artist. I can't say enough good things uh, about Tristan. She's super hard-driven, has the DIY uh, touring spirit, but uh, she also uh, calls it DIO, basically do-it-ourselves. She surrounds herself with good, talented people, and um, she's uh, just a wonderful human. I'm really um, grateful to say that I know her and she is um, just really, really special. She has a recent album out called Aquatic Flowers and it was out on June 4th and it's just an absolutely gorgeous album uh, with some beautiful songs and a couple bangers on there, one of which I'm like totally obsessed with uh, the track Athena and Tristan knows that Um, Roadcase uh, sponsored the recent album release show that Tristan did in Nashville uh, at the five spot there. It was the first live show back at the five spot uh, since its closure during COVID. I was happy and lucky enough to be there at the time. It was a combination of live show and uh, recorded performances from a number of different artists and friends of Tristan. It was a wonderful time, and the album was fantastic, and it played amazingly live, and I was so happy to be there, and so happy to have this uh, interview with Tristan to uh, present to every, every one of you for your listening pleasure, and uh, it's a really great one. So I want to thank Tristan again for 
spending the time with me and sitting down and letting me uh, talk to her about her career and her life and the new album and and just everything. So uh, thanks again for being here for this episode of Road Case and tuning in. And here we go. Okay. Hey, Tristan. Great to see you. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, and you're in Nashville, right? I should know that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think I'm I'm your neighbor. Everything in Nashville is 20 minutes away, right? You're my neighbor. I'm in Chicago. Oh, you're in, in Chicago? You used to be. You grew up down here, though. Wait a minute. Yeah. The entire time I thought that you were from Nashville, but you're from Chicago. I mean, not I from Chicago. Chicago. I live in Chicago. I'm from, okay. from L.A. originally, but, you know, okay. I'm not going to I'm not going to claim to be a Midwesterner. No way. No. You, yeah, it's OK. I'm too close to you know, my I, you know, I love the California roots. So, you know, you got to be kind of like loyal to your hometown. Right. I think so. that it's definitely uh, very shaping and it makes, you know, you know, the old saying, show me the man, it's, show me the child at seven and I'll show you the man. So, I mean, the first seven years of your life, that's who you are. <laughs> show, wait, say that again. It's, um, it's an old saying. It's, uh, show me the child at seven and I'll show you the man. Oh boy. Let me think there for a second. <laughs> Let me see how bad off I am. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, we're, we we try to get better, but we're ultimately pretty guided by uh, you know those unconscious ways we relate to people that are formed at that you know the very beginnings. Yeah, true, true. But is you think it's all locked in by the time you're seven? No, but I think that there's a a, a large required amount of uh, self awareness and work involved in if who you are isn't making isn't working. You know what I mean? So if that in those formative years, um, you are basically establishing how you give and receive love and you're forming, you know, patterns that set you up for a lifetime of relating to other people. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, you're, you're shaped by what went on at that point, I, I guess, or up to that point. And then you sort of, move on from there and relate to the world and the ways that you had been shaped, I guess. Right. Do you feel that's, that's, that's the way it was for you? I think that that's the way it is for everybody. I think most people are driven by unconscious, uh, sort of in, wrapped up in the DNA motives. And I think that's most of how that informs most of how we behave. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, we like to feel that we're in control, but we're not. Hmm. Wow. That's a deep thought. We'd like to feel in control. Well, that's Jung. That's Jung. Yes. That's the whole vibe. It's not just dream analysis for Carl Jung. It's, um, it's, uh, you know, exploration of the psyche and the imprint and the DNA of, uh, the way the mind works and, pair that with like your physiological drives, the things that, you know, we need to eat, we need to to eat, we need to make money. So we have all kinds of things. You have all kinds of different ways uh, that plays out into, you know, 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. But, um, 
you know, we have to, we want to mate, we want to um, fall in love, we want to reproduce, all those things are driving us. But then you have um, what Jung would talk about, which is the shadow. And that's basically, if say if you are, let's do the musician example, because that's what I am. So say I'm a a, a really um, struggling artist and I have a child, I will then, and not everybody, but you know, you might then put on your child. Well, I'd never got to, I have all these unlived dreams. I never got to be an artist. I never got to be a doctor. I never got to be a lawyer. Or I, you know, um, I have all these ideas of what I could have been. And then we put that onto our children and that's called the shadow. So the child grows up with sort of um, this perspective that's impressed on them based on the parents' unlived dreams. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to cover here, but yeah, I think that um, whatever your parents were afraid of or dealing with or um, trying to accomplish, they impress onto you in those formative years. So you yeah. may um, be trying to live out a parent's unlived dream. You don't know. Something to examine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now I'm thinking of myself as a child and as a parent now. <laughs> I'm thinking of my kids' first seven years, and I'm thinking of my own seven, my first seven years. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. And I mean, you're a psychologist. Did you study psychology? Um, not I mean, you kind of do informally, I guess. Informally, for sure. Lately, in the last few years, um, informally. But I've always been interested in, uh you know, what motivates people. And I mean, songwriting is so much of figuring out uh, what's something that's going on in love or in friendship that everybody can relate to, or that happens all the time. What's the pattern there? And then mm-hmm. um, how, how can I make it rhyme? <laughs> um, right. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, but the, but the um, I remember like, maybe before I even knew Jung or really studied any of that stuff before I was ready intellectually, mm-hmm. uh, like before the curiosity was there, I was doing archetypes. And so I was writing songs and this was seven or eight years ago. Yeah. I was thinking of like characters and then describing that character in situations with people and songs. And so I had a couple that made records like, um, I had a song called the detective, which was like the person who was trying to, I just had all these different archetypes for characters you play. And, you know, some people are the detective They're They're trying to uncover what's happening um, and create justice, you know, or or bring justice to the world, whatever, which we know is flawed. If you ever watched any crime show, (laughs) 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 anybody obsessed police officer ends up, um, you know, how we're all complicit. And anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I've always been interested in that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, lately, formally educated in relational group and organizational theories of communication, which went into a lot of theories on love. I got to t- take a lot of really cool classes in college at DePaul University since you're living in Chicago. Yeah. Um, so I took a lot of classes on that and was very interested in that. But that was, you know, 15 years ago. Right. My studies have continued on in a less formal way, in a curious way. Yeah. I mean, 
a lot of what you write about, it seems to be relationship-based. And how do you do that when you're married and in a relationship? Are are they things that come up in your own in your own life that then you write about and how do you relate? Uh, obviously that's, I would assume that's the case or not. Well, I'm not that interesting all on my own, <laughs> but, wow. but I will say that absolutely it's me because I'm deciding that that's a story I want to tell, whether it's about me or somebody else. Like I'm deciding, Hey, you know, I really want to write a song about a kid who grows up in a super religious house with a father who's a preacher who, um, makes his living with convincing his congregation that, you know, whatever evangelical Christianity teaches that, you know, you're right. going to burn hell yeah. if you don't follow these rules. Um, you know, oh, I want to write that song. Okay, well, what are we going to call it? Well, we'll call it Cult Kid because that sounds cool. And then that sits and simmers and you figure it out. But that's my decision ultimately that that's an important thing to write about or that it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily grow up in a cult, but I'm fascinated mm. by cults because nowadays we have things like QAnon sweeping the nation. Right. And uh, when you start to look at cults, you really learn about how um, there's these basic human things that make you susceptible to join a cult. And it's always the same. Hmm. There's always methods. There's a methods. These cults work with very similar methods to um to indoctrinate people. Uh-huh. So how it yeah. works. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, like being in a relationship, like I remember I brought the song on my album, cool blue to buddy. And he was like, Oh, this song is about me. And it's like his favorite song on the record. And it's about him. It's kind of roasting him a little bit, but I think he's, <laughs> he's cool <laughs> he with that. He, <laughs> he agrees. Cause I'm like the really wild emotional one. Like I was, I was, in a heated conversation with buddy my husband and i was like reenacting something and like being really loud and my son was like mama mama calm down he's two and a half not even two and a half (laughs) and i said i said and buddy said don't worry julian you know mama's just acting (laughs) joking. that's funny you know over the top and um he said but you're just so loud (laughs) 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 <laughs> now i've got two boys in my house that are like mom you're so yeah. loud now Mom's they're down. now they're ganging and they're already ganging up on you but um yeah that's oh. interesting so i mean you're in you're you're interested in how humans operate and 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 why they do in any kind of situation i was always wondering if it was like if it's relationship oriented, is it only about you? You kind of come up with other ideas that interest you or other, other ideas kind of, um, or situations sort of present themselves to you and you find ways to write about kind of the psychological intermingling or entanglements that occur therein. Yeah. And I think that it's, for me, that's always the analysis. Like people will I'll hang out with a friend and they'll be like, I'm sorry to dump all this on you. I'm like, no, I want to, this is what Yeah, dump it all. You're not dumping enough on me. <laughs> no, let's just dump it all. <laughs> right. No, but like, um, you know, emotionally dumping, right? You know, where yeah. we let go of what's happening to us or we're in a stressful. And so to me, like, I'm not very good with small talk, um, but I am interested in people's stories and I'm interested in human suffering probably a little more than most because that's just where my brain goes. You know, I like to fix things and I like to 
have some like really could be delusional optimism about like healing things and fixing things. And um, <clears throat> I'm aware that you can't really fix anything, but, <laughs> but I still try like in a really small way mm -hmm. to uh, bring optimism to the suffering that we all deal with on, you know, the highs and the lows, the joy and the sorrow. Yeah. I mean, it's a balance, right? And um, you bring this kind of deep psychological understanding of humans to a certain extent, or whatever you what what you feel is that your understanding or what brings you clarity to these really beautiful songs that uh, have incredibly uh, um, amazingly well structured hooks. Some and also they're just really catchy and beautiful. Um, yeah. And then and so there's that sort of duality of you know it's not deep and dark <laughs> it's really beautiful songs and you know that are that kind of stick in, in my brain at least and from what i read many others so it's uh it's kind of an interesting um meeting up of two different kind of structures you know you're probably the fourth or fifth person who said that to me <clears throat> in like three or four weeks and i i like that that's and you hate all those people. No, I'm kidding. No, yeah. You're my um, <laughs> all of my enemies say that. No, I, but, you're the but fourth asshole that said that. <laughs> you know, I, I've let go. I, I don't have any desire to describe my own music. Like, I really want other people to do that because mm. I don't think I can. But I like that that's how it's being described. And I do feel that lyrically nothing is off limits as far as like I tend to focus on darker subjects or things that are problematic I guess mm -hmm. and I think that I do as a human being focus on that stuff too so that that plays out and then I think that musically I don't want to ever be too heavy-handed and I feel that a lot of times you can beat people over the head if you're a little too any one thing. So maybe there is something going on there where I'm trying to soften the blow of saying something really cutting or something that could really, like if you were examining yourself and you heard something that struck a chord and it would, could make you feel sad, but at the same time, it's kind of wrapped up in something easy to listen to. Maybe it it's like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, perhaps is that, is so are you saying that you agree with that kind of, um... Yeah, I don't think that I'm doing it intentionally, but mm -hmm. I do think that that is kind of how it people are in. Interpreting well, it, yeah. So. I mean, but also your own, your musical taste and what comes out of your own being musically doesn't necessarily have to be like darker or it's just it, it is what it is and then your lyrics are what they are because of you i don't know i just it just seems like an interesting maybe not even a contrast it's let's just call it we can just call it a juxtaposition yeah right yeah, so for sure. how how has it been uh leading up to this new album um that's coming out uh, aquatic flowers on june uh june 4th right four yeah um and I keep thinking it was June 11th because that's when the stream show is. But um, how is it not, how important is playing in front of an audience material that's not yet been released? And how 
if that's important to you, how was it not being able to do that this time around? Every other record I've ever put out, I've been for better, for worse, like on the road, totally distracted with keeping like the wheels on the van. Mm. You know, that's a, it's a very interesting thing when you go on tour because you're not busy, but you're also really busy because you're moving. Um, and this time around, there's no touring. So I've been able to just kind of put my energy into making videos and um, putting a lot of energy into one show, which is this live stream that we're doing on June 11th. Mm-hmm. And um, honestly, it's been a lot calmer, hmm. a lot easier. Um, I do feel that I am going to get to play this record with the band and that's what we're working on right now. And we start, like I said, on, we're starting rehearsals on Wednesday and we'll perform the record in its entirety for the show on the 11th. And then we will be playing shows again in the fall. It's looking like that's when everybody's doing everything in the fall. So yeah, I think that we'll be playing shows again, end of summer, early fall. And because I have four albums out and because I have, one of the things that from the beginning I thought I have to do is tour, tour, tour. So I was like really played a lot of shows and toured a lot in the beginning, played to nobody for a long time, you know, built that up. So I feel when I go to put a show together for a tour, it's not necessarily like, I'm just going to play this new record, probably going to play three or four songs off every record. And then I'll make an hour and a half set. So this is cool because we're just, focusing on this record mm-hmm. which just going to play the, that record and it was made so i would say simplicity was a really important component of the production so i think it's going to be fairly easy to do live so um at least fun it's going right. to be fun to play the band again i haven't played with my band in over a year or so yeah wow well, not being able to play these songs in front of audiences before you recorded them or concurrent with what a typical recording cycle might be, how did that differ for you? I yeah. never make records with my band, live band. Ah, okay. Well, so even even as a, how, how important is audience reaction or just so being important. able to put something out there? It's important for the live show, for sure. Like having an audience is the most important part of making art. So if you take an if you take the audience away from a bunch of artists for a year, you're going to find it's very hard for them to create mm-hmm. it's just wide open. There's no deadline and there's no feedback. Um, right. So playing in front of an audience is instant feedback. And you can, if you're paying attention and you care about giving people a good time, you can really create something in a set, but that's all live. Um so you can see the live show and it's one thing and it's uh, it's got its own form of creativity and its limitations are four people, you know, or five people, however many people are in the band. Mm-hmm. Whereas an album, the way that I make records is that I demo songs when I write them and then I may have the band come in and play, you know, Buddy and I will play guitar and they'll play their rhythm section and then we'll build a track on that. Yeah. I might just stick with the electronic drums we programmed and uh, build it that way. So there's, it's all very much um, different, two separate 
little uh, circles that overlap like a Venn diagram. Like a Venn diagram. God, you did the magic word. That was the magic word for today's interview was Venn diagram. So you get the grand prize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, how much is, do, do you like to tour? And I know you toured with some pretty great names. What was that? What was it like um, for you? What was your kind of favorite touring scenario that you've done in the, in the past few years before kind of COVID or? Oh, I mean, um, it's hard for me to say who was my favorite. So many favorites. What was a, something that stands out in your mind? I mean, hmm. I would say really cool. Uh, oh God, this is a really hard question. I don't know why this is so hard for me. Um, let me think. Well, there's no right or wrong answers clearly. I know. I'm just like scaling. I'm scaling through the, um, the file cabinet, thinking <laughs> of all the <laughs> all of the uh, shows I've played. Uh, you know, honestly, I have. Um, I do enjoy touring. Mm-hmm. I do. Um, I love it. I love performing. I love uh, being in new cities. I love playing with a live band in front of people, mm. and um, I. I, I really enjoy it. Um, as far as like my favorite, I mean, some other, the greats that I've gotten to tour with, um, yeah. Justin Earl, um, Vanessa Carlton, Robin Hitchcock. Um, I got to open for television by myself. So, um, mm. once here in Nashville, um, yeah, I mean, it, uh, playing for a room full of people who are excited to see live music. It's the best feeling in the world. And uh, I do enjoy touring. Um, I do enjoy it. It is also hard work. It's like anything. It's uh, intense and very difficult. And then it's very rewarding at the same time. It's like having kids. Yeah. (laughs) Emphasis on the difficult on that one. Very difficult. I used to read poetry. Now I read Books like One, Two, Three, Magic, you know. Oh, I mean, Dr. Seuss is a form of poetry, I guess, but. Oh, the genius <laughs> in, in, in some of these kids' books. Oh, yeah. You see my summer reading list. It's like Dr. Seuss and. There are some yeah. great, there are some great ones that I liked, that I liked to read for sure. I can't remember the names now, but there were a few favorites that I had that usually were not the favorites of the, of, of each child for sure. No way. They're like, oh, you're going to read that again, dad? Like, come on. They're, they like, like, my son is obsessed with excavators, so. Oh, I'm, see, yeah. I know all about backhoes and excavators and dump <laughs> More than you ever wanted to know, I'm sure. I had never thought I would know so much about it. Um, but the Richard Scarry books with all the illustrations, and I saying right. Oh, right. You, Where they name yeah. all the stuff. Well, you have a son. He's, like, into all that. Yeah. Some are super into, like, the tractors and the things and, like... Wow. The gender, like gender is so interesting that you, when you really experience it, right? Well, so being a mother, I, I, and seeing my son who is just this formed thing, you know, he's just this formed person. He likes what he likes and we really don't have much influence on it. Um, and you know, there is his first Christmas, everyone's giving him trucks, but this kid loves wheels and he'll go wheels. And, and, and I don't take from that, like, 
anything other than if I had a child who was transgender, I would know. Right. Because my child would be immediately wanting to play with the girls, immediately attracted to all the things girls typically want to do. And that's what being a trans kid is. And, um, and the fact that as a parent, you would like deny them their natural desires is like, it doesn't make any sense to me, you know? So yeah, I see my kid going for dinosaurs and going for all the typical gender, uh, you know, uh, gendered things. Right. And, um, what's the same way human human beings love computers, right? Like handheld computer, the world is mesmerized by it. Something in us really is just mesmerized by this black box. Right. Yeah. Right. So we know that like we have an attraction and, and, and we also have an attraction to cigarettes. Like those are another thing that everybody gets really addicted to. So well, that's, a phys- that, that's a physical addiction. I'm going to put that in a different category, however. It is. But why do we like it? Yeah. It's an arbitrary <clears throat> right. thing to enjoy doing. And it's an arbitrary thing to have such a strong pull to do, right? It is an addiction for sure. Hands down. I mean, I've, well, I, I, just, I know I've been, yeah. been addicted to cigarettes before. Um, But, uh, you know, there are just things that we, uh, and so, but I guess what my point is there are physiological, uh, uh, traits that, and, and and this plays out sort of in like, um, you know, we know little boys are attracted to wheels. Mm -hmm. And so we know that the Julian is right. And so it's no, um, and also simultaneously we're feeding him trucks and trucks and trucks at, at birthdays and Christmas. We're also reinforcing that, that interest and desire into one specific thing. Um, he also likes to vacuum. So how confusing is that? I mean, vacuum doesn't necessarily have to be gender oriented. Maybe he just likes his room clean. <laughs> I think he just likes his this well, if it's like, got a motor and you plug it in, that's kind of a thing too, right? It like makes a noise and then it's like cleans up this dirt. The dirt's there and then it's gone and it's got a roller. It's very intriguing kind of household thing that, yeah, yeah. That, that makes I sense just, to me. Yeah, I just, it's hard. It's hard to know where you're influencing things and where um, society is influencing things and how to resist all that is, it's difficult but at the same time, I think that 100% of the time, if you have a trans kid, um, they, they'll they tell you eventually. If, if it doesn't happen early, early, like with a lot of kids. You mean when talk, you say tell, you mean you'll know. I'm, uh, well, just from like, you know, learning about being trans and trans children. Um, they're, uh, you know you can kind of look it up. It's just, there's, there's telltale signs that your child is trans. And, and a lot of it is just insisting on hanging out with um, kids of the opposite gender, insisting on um, dressing like the opposite gender, you know? Um, And then eventually they get old enough to put words to it. And then they tell you. Right. And if they feel like they're in an environment where they can be whoever their soul is, Mm -hmm. And you're going to hear about it earlier. And if they, and if maybe you're 
not aware of all this stuff and you don't know, and you've never known anybody who's trans, maybe it takes longer for them to come out to you about it. But um, when I've watched and learned about trans kids, you know, they're very smart and they're eight and they're just saying, you know, no, I want to grow my hair out. And so, you know, I want to, I want to be a girl. And so their whole thing or a boy respectively, and the whole thing is the first, the first part of it is um, transitioning socially. Mm -hmm. So that for them is a really huge part of like, I'm going to be able to be how I feel which is I'm going to be able to dress like a girl and hang out with the girls and be called a girl. And that's like the whole thing with it is to be seen for who they feel they are and who they are, not even who they feel they are. We all feel who we are, Yeah, yeah, (laughs) who they are. So I couldn't imagine being a parent and not just being like, cool, dude, what do you want to do next? I mean, it's parenthood is like, I'm going to get out of the way. Of course you do have to discipline your kids. So they're not a maniac and terrorizing people in society, but (laughs) A lot of it is just like getting out of the way and learning how to handle and 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 allowing them to, um, you know, teaching them how to communicate who they want to be and what they want. And, and, you know, you have to have limits, of course, but I'm saying a lot of parenting is um, for me has been uh, just learning how to be good at getting out of the way and letting him be who he needs to be. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly, you know, parenting, I know from experience, I have three kids, they're, they're much older than yours, uh, but they were your age at one point, oddly enough. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Has it changed your songwriting? Has it changed the way you look at creating music? I mean, it's kind of a relatively new thing for you, right? It's hard for me to tell if it's changed. Or influence, let's call it, let's say, let's say influence instead of changed. Um, it has influenced my process of working. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure I'm less productive. I'm probably a little bit less productive than I was. Right. Um, I think the, but I don't mind that necessarily because I do think that um, now I'm way more focused like, okay, babysitters come in. I'm going to go do my thing and I'm going to, we got to get this done in this period of time. Yeah. Whereas my life before was a lot more self-centered and a lot more leisurely and a lot more social, not really social as I was. I mean, from a work process standpoint, you know, clearly you have to be way more efficient or, or else. Right. But from a, um, um, from a creativity standpoint, um, parenting can bring so much to the surface of your own self and the way, and, and you people, you you know, you can question, am I doing this right? Am I not? What's going on? Why is this happening? Why am I pissed at my kid? Yeah. I mean, these kind of new feelings have they right now. What's that? Why do I want to throw my own kid in the garbage can? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, well, let's say I've said this, many times. And one thing that being a parent does is it makes you have to think about somebody else. And it's not important things about other people. It's like in the moment, you need to be dressed, you need to be fed and basics of living and you don't get to lament in your own self-indulgent 
wanderings of the past and the future and the anxieties of all those things that I used to be um, more concerned with. I I don't have time. That's a luxury of youth. It is a luxury of youth. And it's, it's a good mechanism because you, at that point in time, you really are trying to figure out what am I going to do with myself? You know, where am I going? Well, I mean, there's a key point. It's now there's uh, someone else is uh, I'm responsible for somebody else. I'm somebody else's parent. That's a huge fucking thing. (laughs) I'm going to unleash a white male into the world. (laughs) Right. Who likes tractors? (laughs) <laughs> I know, like, here goes my impression of the shadow on him you know get to that piano do your skills no i don't i'm not like <laughs> there's, no, there's no like my when i start to play guitar and sing and my husband and i we buddy and i start playing music he goes stop stop and mm. he makes us stop does hmm. not like and i haven't figured out why yeah very bizarre does um, that suck for you yeah, it sucks. I bet. I'm like, dude, back off. Let me finish this song now. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like, seriously, how does that? Well, so what impact does that have on you when he's like, stop, stop, stop? Do you think he's just being kind of like a goofy two year old or that her, his parents are doing something? Or do you think, do you fear that he's not musical? Or do you care? I'm not worried about that because that boy can recite like probably 90 nursery rhymes and he's not even two and a half. <laughs> okay. I'm not worried about it when it's focused on him and his music yeah, and he loves yeah. to dance. So we just kind of like, we cater to him. I mean, this is, <laughs> I was one of those people. I mean, you're looking at part of my studio here and this mm-hmm. is mostly adult zone. Okay. Yeah. You come down here and have a, the adult zone. But I, I was one of those people like, I'm not going to have, toys all over my house i mean my house is yeah right beautiful. everyone says that they're like oh it's gonna be so- how could that person's house be so messy they just have a kid <laughs> because honestly anything that keeps him happy and occupied and and flourishing and play i mean i remember the day he started actually playing with toys and the imagination just opened up you know and mm. it's like watch them I, I i like having a kid he 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 brings me into the moment he's so in the moment kids are right there in the moment yeah, they are totally everything and he doesn't understand when we my husband and i are talking about something else you know he's he's just like oh that siren is crying he said that to me the other day he goes mama the siren is crying and i said <laughs> that's a good line do I need to give you writing credit? You probably won't remember this. <laughs> the siren is crying. Just be quiet and eat your vegetables, right? <laughs> yeah. Writing it down. Yeah. <laughs> well, he'll listen to this interview, no doubt, and a little, and then he'll. I know. I just gave I gave it away. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think that it's informed my process. I don't really know that it's changed anything for me creatively, except made me have to be a lot more intentional about being creative and intentional about playing music and really like schedule that time for myself. Um, because if you don't, you know, my kid is by the nature of his age is just, you know, my number one. So I, I take him to the park, you know, I, I take a lot of time to do fun things. My husband and I always used to laugh, funny I used to joke like, we just want to have a kid so that we can like say we have to go to the zoo today. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Well, no, for sure. It gives you an excuse to do things that maybe you probably wouldn't do by yourself. Sure. Yeah. Never did any, we're not that fun. We were never that fun. <laughs> now we could get him. We have to be fun because yeah. he reminds us he's, you know, makes jokes and acts silly all the time. We're, we kind of try to remember that, you know, laughing is the number one way to like heal a relationship. Like if you're having a family, if you're fighting with your spouse or you're fighting with a coworker, make them laugh. It's a bonding. It's it chemically bonds you to people. So yeah, that's another little psychological tidbit for you that I found fascinating. Um, so yeah, it's a good little tool and kids, they make you laugh and, and, you know, we, it, it brings a richness to my home life that I didn't have before. The laughter? Uh, just having kids. <laughs> oh, having kids in general. Yeah, you weren't laughing at all before you had him. No. <laughs> no, to go back to the, to the laughter thing, it's like I, I probably do that too much. I start just to crack a joke and then just to make it, I don't know, somehow it's just always sort of there for me. Yeah. And it brings, it's, it's a great way. If you're having like a problem with a kid who's kind of like uh, tantruming or, you know, being obstinate, you can yeah. just crack a joke and kind of like snap them out of it. Right. Right. So um, you grew up in Illinois, right? Down, you said on the, off the, no, in Indiana or Illinois? I grew up on the South side, Lansing, Illinois. It's, um, it's, you know, directly South. Oh, okay. 65, the minute you hit Illinois. Oh, it's, it's before, it's 65 dancing. before. Oh, okay. City. 65 was only in Indiana, but anyway, we don't need to do like the highway system, but. It's like right where that split goes up to <clears throat> 95, oh. where 90 begins. That's, ex my childhood house was a half a block from the expressway. So. Ah, okay. Did you have like have the highway running through your backyard kind of thing? That is exactly how I grew up. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so how did that, that first seven years shape you and in, in, in who you are today, going back to our original theme? Um, ooh, that's that I think that um, definitely a lot of anger. <laughs> mm. mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say, you know, that that would take a long time for me to figure out, but I definitely had in a lot of, I've always had a lot of anger and I've always been very outspoken and, um, that doesn't fare too well, especially when you're a girl. Hmm. So that was, it was tough. Well, I mean, how, how did you learn that, that it didn't fare too well? There must've been something. My ass beat. <laughs> oh, you got your ass kicked. Yeah. I mean, there were mean people living on my block. I remember this one. Well, girl you were saying out. mean things to them apparently. I was probably just defending myself. Big mouth, angry kid, just life. big mouth, angry kid kind of reminds That's kind of how I was. <laughs> but I didn't get my ass kicked because I was bigger than everybody else. I wasn't well, mean to good. anybody else, but I had fucking big mouth. Yeah, we, yes, yes. But also, um, I don't really, you know, I, I think that, um, I appreciate the way that I grew up because, you know, you, everything I ever wanted to have, I had to figure out a way to get there. You know, I was first generation college student, um, 
and I had to kind of claw my way to get out of there, you know? So that was also the part of it, the struggle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of the only people interested in music, hmm. for sure. My father was interested in music. And so I had him and he would play guitar for me and I would sing. And I was recognized in my community when I was five for being a singer. And so my father would, my father fostered that. I mean, he would build me these instrumental tracks. I used to sing the patriotic songs at the 4th of July celebration in my town every year. Wow. You were famous. You were famous early. I wasn't famous. (laughs) <laughs> but I had gigs, you know, <laughs> Yeah, right. I had gigs, um, but he would make me these elaborate instrumental tracks in his studio. So my dad had a home studio and he was in bands. He used to work six days a week. And then on the weekends at night, he would play in bands to make money. Right. And um, so there was a lot of me seeing that growing up, which I'm sure it shaped me for sure, without a doubt, my dad. Um, as a musical influence. Is he still um, around? He is. Mm-hmm. He is. He, um, he just moved, uh, he just moved it 15 minutes away. Up oh, England. aren't you lucky? Mm-hmm. Are you happy about he, that? I wish they were like the kind of people who were like, we've got nothing else to do. We'll come get your kid and help you. But they're busy too. Oh, you hear that parents? <clears throat> so here's another, you got the whole family listening to this now. <laughs> You got your two and a half year old, and now your parents are going to listen to this, and they're like, "She wants us to babysit more." Oh, they know. <laughs> oh, they do. Yeah, for sure. Well, wow, what am I saying? Of course, they know. They're your they parents. Like, hey. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then and then, so you lived in Chicago for a little while. You went to DePaul, you said, or did yeah. you not? Did you commute, or I don't know. Yeah. So the first um, year, I commuted mm-hmm. and. And because I couldn't afford to live on campus. Yeah. Yeah. That's an expensive area Private for school. sure. So I worked uh, a couple of jobs and I commuted my first year and I saved up so that my second year I could study abroad in Italy. And so oh, I did that. So did I. I. Wow. Yeah, I did. Where'd you study? Oh. Rome. Oh, Roma. I studied in Roma. Pa- I studied in, in Padova. Padua oh. in English. Padua. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I talked to Ron Gallo on this show and he has Italian roots and Ron he, he lived in Nashville for a while, so maybe you you know him or ran into him. I know him. Ron. Oh yeah, Ron's great. And then so he toured a little bit in Italy. His dad's like super Italian, wa- wanted him to come over there. I think it said his dad owns property there. Uh, I hope I'm remembering that correctly. Um and so then he did a couple tours there and met a nice Italian girl um recently before COVID. Um yeah, so I he I, before the interview I the, he put her on, and so we were chatting in Italian a little bit. It was kind of fun, but yeah. So uh, so through DePaul, you did a program in Rome. I did uh, Rome's, and I lived in Rome also with my family. Not uh, like ten years ago, I took a year off and lived in Rome. Yeah, oh, what a um, that's just a mag- unbelievably magnificent place. It really was. It was the first time I had gotten out of my house and lived on my own and sort of felt like I was so being socialized in a really quick, bizarre environment. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What school did you attend while you were there? I I, su- I was assuming it was uh, part of studying. It was part of DePaul's program. And it was basically, it was in a language school. And I was uh, an Italian minor. So 
I was taking language classes and history of Rome and mm. some of my gen eds, which could be anything, but specifically oh, uh-huh, like yeah. living there. And then language classes. I was in these intense three hours a day, five days a week language classes. Yeah. Did Plus you take Italian? Yeah. Did you take Italian before you went? Did you go there with a prior knowledge of Italian? Just a year of studying it at school. Well, at least you had something. I was, I didn't have much because unfortunately, American schools don't really teach languages very well. well um, it's, when I went to Italy and I was put into this intensive language school, I learned within the first month more than I had gotten out of um, my freshman year of college. But I don't, I guess it's not fair to judge the school because um, the 20 or 18 year old mind is not, I mean, I wasn't really that, um, I, I will say this, a lot of grade school and high school is about socializing. And then your brain gets to be like, you know, to a place where it actually can absorb. At least that was my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I was in that and it was an amazing experience. And then I came back and I said, I can't live at home anymore. I'm going to move to the city. And so I got a job in the city and I worked to pay my rent and I finished school in four years and I had no life, but I supported myself and I took, um, it was probably a good eight months after I graduated that I moved to Nashville to be a Hmm. songwriter. Oh, really? Okay. So had you been in bands in college or sort of when did that kind of start? I had been or just singing, writing my own songs and playing them live since I was 14 years old. Mm. So I was playing coffee shops in the suburbs of Chicago and um, playing covers and singing, you know, and all through college. It's just sort of something I always did. Nothing I ever did very seriously because I was always so consumed with school And so when I graduated college, I sort of had this choice. I was a straight A student, so I could have gone and done a fellowship at another school and gotten my PhD and done that route and probably would have really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, or I could have moved to Nashville and become a songwriter right? and and do that for real. And I, I never thought I would be like an artist. Like I do what I'm doing now. I learned what I, what I'm doing now. I learned through living here. Um, but I thought I was going to come down and write country music, mm-hmm. songs for country music. And and and, the, and there was, and there you I go. I apparently didn't know anything because I got down here and I realized, oh shit. Well, you came here thinking you knew everything and like this was the place to be, or I mean, um... I came thinking I'll write songs for country music, but I didn't know how to do that or what. I had no clue. I mean, if you grow up here, you you get a a, a great schooling of how to the different approaches to making a living playing music in mm-hmm. Nashville and in the industry larger. I mean, and, and someone in your family is in the music business or is related to somebody, you know, I have a friend whose grandfather wrote ring of fire and. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. All of a sudden one day his inheritance comes through and that's part of it. Yeah. My point is there's just such a, like a, a longstanding lineage here it's like part of uh, it's just like you know if you were moving to la to 
go in the movie business. There's just, um, I came to Nashville with a dream and, you know, knowing that I could write songs, but I had no clue how to do anything. And so uh, I just kind of came here and started running around playing music. And luckily there's this amazing scene here. You can just kind of pop right into. Right. What scene is that? It's the ever flowing local scene of the best musicians moving here from all over the world. And it is kind of like the gene pool. It lives on forever. (laughs) You You pop out it stays the same and it's like this. Right. How long were you here before you started to, to gig or did you, um, or did you get kind of, did you get in a van or a car right away and just start playing touring around the country? Mm, no, I, I, I stayed in Nashville for, hmm, well, I guess it would have had to be two years mm-hmm. before I started touring. I went, I met Chris Scruggs. He was, not only playing around, but he started dating my roommate. And so um, he was playing a gig in Athens, Georgia, and he wanted someone to come and play the middle set. So I said, sure, I'll come. He had a three hour gig. I played the middle set. Mm -hmm, And um, we drove there, we played the gig, we drove home. And I was like, this is what I need to do. Oh, really? (laughs) Obviously. So I began, um, touring to New York and Chicago and just kind of doing that. Mm-hmm. And I got my first record deal in New York. And um, that's kind of how it all started with being, you know, with uh, my records and touring and all that. Stuff. How soon after you moved to Nashville, did you get that record deal? <clears throat> Well, let's see. I moved to Nashville in 2007 and I think I signed the record deal in 2010. Hmm. So, and what was it about that trip with Chris Scruggs? Then when you came back, what were your thoughts about that? Was it only just one gig? It was just one gig. I think it was just that sitting around this town just playing all the time here is not the way like you need mm. to be playing everywhere and building everything and seeing the world and traveling and getting out there. I think um, I had just never seen anybody tour before. Oh, okay. I mean, I knew bands went on tour and they came to town, you know, right. But I had never been in the van and thought, Oh, well I've got a car. So I started touring in a Honda civic. Oh, really? Yeah. With two other people. Wow. And um, I didn't give a care that I had a van or not. Um, I just started figuring out like, okay, well, I just got to book shows. And so I was able to book a show in New York. That was a good show. Mm-hmm. Now I got to get there. Where do, I, where do I go on the way? And so we, it, it's surprisingly, it was, you know, kind of grueling. But at that point, I was so excited to see the world and to travel and to get to play that nothing could have stopped me, you know. It's just like excited. You know? Yeah. The young gun, the the spirit of the young gun, you know? Yeah, for the, sure. I mean, was it the, was it the travel itself? Or was the travel to the gig in a different city, different crowd, different feel, different vibe? What, what, what was it exactly? All of it. I mean, when you drive the roads between these cities, I mean, how often in a normal person's life do you just 
drive between every city in the United States. Like I've done that like 12 times. And what you see between, I mean, that's really cool. I don't think that you, there are many jobs where you, that's part of the deal to see everything. Yeah. Um, so I enjoyed that. I mean, to me, to me, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to figure out what drives a person literally and figuratively. <laughs> right, to, yeah, I got that. <laughs> uh, explore that way. I mean, there are people who are, you know, nomadic in nature without the music part and they just love to travel and to see things. Um, but I felt, I felt like this is the next play for me. This is the next move. This is what I have to build. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've always been a, like, if you build it, they will come kind of deal. Even with my recordings, you know, start from, um, not really knowing what you're doing to figuring out every step of the process so that you can really get what you want. Um, and you're not losing things in translation to big teams, you know? Yeah. It was more of a DIY situation clearly, but you enjoy the, um, you enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. There's not much else to enjoy. Well, there's the end also, but you enjoy the means as well. Yeah. There's well, the show yes. too. Are you, are you saying that the show wasn't that great that you just, you enjoyed no, the, you shared the awesome. whole process? Okay. The shows are awesome. And like the applause is great. But that's like a dopamine shot that um, that is the same. But you can get that from making something at home, and, and you don't have to rely on anybody else. <laughs> oh, you you can maybe. Yeah, I can get a. Do I get I get I get jacked, jacked <laughs> from making a hot track. Like I get I get like. Yeah, right on. Yeah. So to me, like, I can get that high of making something. Um, and like, who knows if I'll like it a month or two months or a year later, but that day mm -hmm. it's the best thing I've ever made. You know, that feeling, like, I like that. I can live on that feeling. Um, I love playing shows and the adrenaline and all that stuff too. Um, but shows are, are very risky because, you know, for, if you have, a, <laughs> not all shows are great. You know, you've seen a bad show before from somebody who's like a legend. Like I remember I went to um, Poor Castle and I saw Paul Westerberg play with his band. Mm -hmm. He was pissed the whole time. He, it seemed like they didn't practice enough. And he was like very mad at the band. I could tell and frustrated at the way hmm. things were sounding. Mm -hmm. And it was just a bad show for him. Like I didn't mind witnessing a bad show because for most people probably don't like tune into that kind of stuff but i was tuned in yeah and you know he was amazing but his band you know was i you know and he was pissed so um i think that um shows are more risky like they're not to to get in line with the with the audience and then what you're doing to be all together once you when you go on tour the great thing is like after the fourth or fifth show it's fun because you're not remembering anything you're just like doing it it's just mm -hmm. like you and you can perform it just becomes this other thing um but you can't guarantee you know when you get into a room and you play a show I mean, there's a lot of factors right you have like a you know a rude sound guy killing the vibe making you sound like crap <laughs> there's a lot of factors can you hear everything okay or you know 
is your drummer drunk? I mean, there's just so many different. There's things that you can't, there's some things that you can't control. Right. And you want to control them all, but you can't in a live setting. You can't control them all. So I wouldn't even try. I would just say that, um, that playing live is a lot. um, It's, it's one of those things that is completely out of your control, which can make it amazing. Right. Well, except for the music itself. I mean, so everyone's supposed to do their job, right? Oh yeah. And I think that I don't want to give the wrong impression. I work with like really amazing musicians and that's part of the reason why, um, you know, I enjoy it so much, but I, you know, there's so much going on. Like, you know, you can open for somebody and their fans just don't get it. And the vibe is hard and you have to work it to get to a place with them and you have 40 minutes to do it. You know, that's, that's the real thing. Yeah. Do you see that as a challenge or do you just like, that's too fucked. I don't want to deal with it. I, I've opened for Vanessa Carlton for three months and we were playing dinner theaters. So it would be like, here's my song. And then like some clanging, like, Oh my God. So many people on my show (laughs) complain about the clanging of silverware on the, on the plates, which is fucking annoying in any setting, let alone if you're trying to get up there and play music through it. Right. And they're seated. And so it's not like the rock club. And so that's a whole other right. beast. Yeah, yeah. But I would, I would go in and, and it wasn't like Vanessa was on the side of her fans either, because I think I would, I sort of took it upon myself to go up there and like whip them into shape. Like, when, like <laughs> right. Finish your food perfect. now. Cause Vanessa, all right, I'll tolerate it. Cause I'm not the headliner, but yeah. Vanessa don't fucking do that. Get your shit together. Yeah. <laughs> she here. sent me out here to play guitar and sing. Yeah, but I'm gonna tell you a couple other things right now. And here, here, here's the list. And like in those situations too, when people would talk in the front row, oh, it would drive me nuts. It drives me nuts as a fucking fan. Let me tell you. And in, and that's really what I would tap into. In, in those situations, you can't just attack somebody. You no, sort of have to get this, audience. Hey, the guy to your right one is actually trying to listen. Yeah, would you say something? Oh, 100%. Oh, shit. I, I love you. I love you. How much would you say? These bulls sitting in the front row to shut the fuck up say yay. And they all go, yay. <laughs> oh, serious? That's awesome. Yeah. I wish more artists would do that. Oh, I talk so much shit because who cares? Mm-hmm. We're all in this together. And, and if you can't, if you're so unaware that you don't realize that you can just walk 50 feet back to the bar and talk. Yeah, I know. Right. I know, I know a lot. Of, I, know, I know a lot of artists probably do that. But I mean, I do remember one in particular that who was famous for just shaming people in the audience was Joe Jackson, the 80s artist. From a long, I mean, he's done so much, so much, so many other great things. But back in the 80s, uh, I think I saw him at the Hollywood Palladium in LA when I was in high school. And he's like, pointed to this, this guy and told him to shut the fuck up. And he stopped the show. He wasn't it's not between songs. No, he'd stop. I I have to work. I I didn't. There is a point where you start to ruin the show for everybody else because you're focused on the people behaving. Yeah, there's that. Right. So I I try to like toe the line of, you know, doing my best to sort of shame. Listen, 99% of the time, it just takes a little bit of like addressing the rules Mm -hmm. and people are like, I get it. Um, But I mean, I, 
I would say I have, um, I do see it as a challenge and it is when you open for somebody a challenge. I think that a lot of that though is taken care of if you're opening for the right person and if it's the right environment. But yeah, it's hard if you're a solo performer to get up there and- um, Right. The the irony is that, um, or I don't know, I wonder what you think about this, but um, it it must be hard to get up there with just a guitar in your voice, right? Because you're into this environment where it could- be fans that don't want to hear that potentially. I mean, a rude audience or something, for example. But on the other hand, um, is there an element that you want to jump into that scenario because you're playing for um, an audience that may not be familiar with your work and that's kind of the nature of um, opening Open. for somebody, right? So then you're, 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 you need to expose yourself to new... Um, to new audiences and gain kind of new following. It's no pressure. Not only no pressure, but you also are creating potentially new fans. Correct. So that's what I'm saying. I'm saying you go into it. So when you open for someone, they take care of everything. You show up and you play and then you you fish new fans. It's it's very easy. If you didn't, if the show didn't sell well, it's not on you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, right. You didn't need to get them. And the that art. person that was talking in the front row is not going to be your fan. It's not a fan. Going to be a fan anyway. So you might as well insult them because you're making everybody else I happy. I'm pretty sure Vanessa didn't want them there anyway. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. she's like, oh, he's going to go out there and whoop some ass and get these people ready. Right. Um, you know, she had a hit, so she has a lot of people who are like not music fans, maybe that are coming because they love that song. Mm. She would walk out on stage and play the first song of the night. Be like, nice. Okay, that's over with. So if you were here to see that, bye. <laughs> right. No, she's got to say, I'll play. she'll play it at the end too, so they stick around. <laughs> right. It's like a reprise. So, but I mean, I think she was into it. And if she had, it, you know, I, it, it wasn't just her. Um, it's it's not just her. I mean, that, that's happened. It's happened a lot. And I think oh, yeah, I. Sure, I, it I happens know, way too frequently. Earl. Pardon? Justin Earl took no shit. Oh, I bet. Yeah. But yeah, the opening is 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 no pressure. It's already built in. You just are part of the show. You're hired to come in and play for an hour, and it's easy. You don't have to promote it necessarily. You don't mm-hmm. have to worry that you're going to sell enough tickets um, and keep these club owners happy and keep everybody paid. You have no, there's no stakes. So you're just like hired to come in and do it. I love that. So the trade-off mm. that you are going in front of new people who don't know your material. It's not your people. So you can play for 250 people a night doing that. Or like for me, I can play for 100 people that are my fans in a headline show that know every word. And those are like the really magical ones. That's fun, right? That's the best. That's the best. Yeah. Because those people are like, are you going to play off of your second album, Save Raina, you know, whatever. Right. And you're like, yeah, sure. Now I am. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But let's go back to you being a control person that we talked about before. (laughs) Well, I mean, I... Use the word autonomy. (laughs) Okay. Whatever you want to call it. Potato, potato. You've said that you like to surround yourself with good people. So you also did at the when we just spoke about that. You talked about surrounding yourself with good people. Let's talk about that a little bit. What does your team kind of look like and how uh, being a singer-songwriter um, 
how is it important? You have a touring band, maybe it's different for the studio, like, and your sound people, et cetera. What does that whole look like for you, both in the studio and on the road? Um, yeah, I don't want anyone to get the picture of me wrong. I am not operating alone. I have a lot of uh, people who help complete what I lack. And I think that that's mm. a real challenge of today is that everybody is forced to do everything because there's the budgets are lower. We're in a shrinking economy, like a disappearing economy for music. Yeah. And so everybody's like, well, trying to be everything. And um, so when I say do DIY, it's really DIO, do it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, good. I think that collaboration is probably the, I, that's all I do is collaborate. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm collaborating with my husband who engineers and mixes, or I'm collaborating with, you know, an author that I love reading and it's inspiring me. Or I'm collaborating with someone else's music that makes me feel a certain way or influences me in some way. Um, so I don't, I don't think that. Um, and then, and then the band. I mean, making music is not that fun by yourself. Um, it really does get a whole lot. It's like having sex by yourself. It'll do. <laughs> but else <laughs> We're going there now. Yeah, no. in a pinch, you know, it'll work. And people bring, you know, people bring things and, and that's how you learn. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, um, you know, I'm not a pirate out here sailing alone. I have a lot of, I, I, I pride myself in finding people in this town who are amazing, who maybe don't have a gig. And I'll be like, okay, this guy's awesome. And then they play with me for a while. And then someone with a bus drives past and says, Hey, you're good come on my bus <laughs> right so uh you know i i've played with a lot of different people but i keep you know these are long standing and been doing it for whatever well, 13 years so long standing mm-hmm. relationships of playing with people for long periods of time and going on the road together and spending a lot of time together so yeah yeah it's just um it's all collaboration when it comes to not just the music, but the art and working with artists and merch. And that is a lot of like videos and photographs and all those things is collaborating with um, other artists. And that's 99% of the money that I make, I use to hire other artists to do stuff. So that's mm. the nature of the business now. You break even and you're winning. Yeah. Breaking even. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the structure of your own operation is what you've created. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. But so I was, we were talking about, uh, God or goddesses. Let's talk about, um, Athena a little bit. Um, what a beautiful song. I fucking love it. <laughs> I love it. I love the riff and I love how you love the riff in that song clearly from mu- yeah. music. Yeah. Right. But okay. you, um, then you told me that you were, you lived in Rome. So clearly you studied, I I'm assuming a little bit of Roman mythology, which of course is based on Greek mythology and the, the Athena tale a little bit. Um, that's a long story, but um, 
it has a very interesting big picture about the place of women in society. And um, I find it so interesting. I can't wait to hear that song played live, by the way. Yeah. There are Athenas all around us. Uh, you know, Athena is the goddess of men's domains. She's strong in men's domain, wisdom in battle. Uh, she's sort of the overseer of the arts. So she's all around us fixing things. Um, you know, women are equally responsible for what's going on. And yet we sort of are left out of the story a lot. And mm. I think diverse depictions of women, um, that's something that I think we can do better at. And I feel that women are um, taught often in our culture that, you know, withholding sex and using sex um, as power that they have, like Aphrodite style, that goddess, the goddess of sexuality, that goddess is, um, and, and a lot of the arts too, women use sexuality as like, oh, I'm a strong, independent woman. And I'm not, I think we should be able to be, you know, completely free with our bodies and all that. And I'm, I, I just think that, um, that there needs to be more recognition for the Athenas of the world. And we do see Athena depicted in stories, um, you know, like Arya in Game of Thrones, she would be the Athena type, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Moana. <laughs> <laughs> right. Athena. Yeah. And they're all around us in our everyday life, but we don't necessarily recognize uh, that strength, that goddess-like power. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a very mainstream power. It's not a very mainstream idea to be like, oh, I'm like an, I'm an Athena. I'm more of an Athena. Um, and so I think that a lot of, you know, and saying this again, you know, an ambitious, outspoken woman is often faces a lot of, you know, backlash. But um, the song itself was just sort of like, hey, you know, I see you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is how it feels. And it's okay. And, and, you know, the imagery of Athena is heavy garlands, you know, these garlands of flowers, Mm. you know, it's a heavy burden to bear and recognizing the sorrow in the world. It's a heavy burden to bear and still going into battle um, is the strength there. And so I do think a lot of women who are, and in the video, I showed a lot of women in the talent portion of a beauty pageant. Oh yeah, right. Playing mm-hmm. piano and and dancing and like and those, that to me is the power of Athena. Well, why did you choose that kind of typical oddball beauty pageant sort of thing? I mean, oddball. Okay, I'm being judgy. Okay, <laughs> is it typical? Well, the typically oddball. I just thought it was kind of like you know the the, the, the um that way of judging w- women in a, in a particular way. Um, why did Either you, why really? did you, why did you choose that sort of, and it was like a fifties, sixties kind of level beauty pageant. Why would, why did you choose that? So it was two beauty pageants from the 1970s. And <laughs> I was totally off. I, okay. Hey, it's okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Um, it's cool. I, it, I chose it because the men are the judges, 
okay, so the story of the golden apple, the video is about the story of the golden apple. Right. You know this story? I put a video on, on the story. I did. I, I listened to it. That's why I was like, okay, I'm not going to make you go through that entire thing, but yeah, it's applicable. The whole, the whole issue is that men are judging. So if you're in a society where you need to get married to survive because you can't own land, you can't own have ownership of money. And so you have to compete with other women to get married so that you can become less of a burden on your family and be married into, right? So this translates, it changes, obviously, as women have the ability to work and have some financial independence. But let's be honest, the feminization of poverty. Most women are poor. So um, again, we have women taught that they are to compete in beauty pageants. Now, the beauty pageant is a very extreme example, but they still exist. You don't think that being on the cover of Elle magazine is a beauty pageant. I mean, yes, yeah, these women are right. beautiful. They walk into your room and you say, wow, holy good God, this woman is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. I mean, any woman or man could say it. But the, the idea that you are holding yourself as a woman to competing to be the most beautiful, um, and that's really what you're relegated to. That idea is not, I don't think, any more poignant than in beauty pageants that exist. Pageantry exists to this day. And the messages behind that, that men are the judges and that women are to compete for who's the most beautiful and everything else you have to offer is not quite as important. Right, right. Well, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, right? Yeah, yeah. But in it's that, you were also you're also showing right? the multifaceted nature of of women that they they're that Athena was powerful, but also had to balance all these other factors, which I think is really interesting. Yes, and 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 I think that for women, I think there is some resistance now to kind of playing into that. Um, that idea that you have to be seducing, you know, mm -hmm. and that you have to be sexual. And, that is the, you know, this is, um, you know, women aren't supposed to age. There's whole industries based on the pulling, tucking, tightening, uh, and these beauty standards that are, for some women, they feel that this is the, this is the most important area they need to focus on in order to compete and it's reinforced. So I'm saying it's okay to fail miserably at that <laughs> and to find um, your power elsewhere because that's the way we naturally are. Mm. Let's make room for that. Not everybody can compete. Not everybody can be on the cheerleading squad. Some of you have to just be in the drama club. It's okay. Right. So there's a level of like self-acceptance, but understanding what's going on in the big picture, in other words. Yes. I think that when you watch that video, I hope that you would think it's really weird and creepy that yeah. women are doing this, that they're competing to win a prize and that there's a group of men just sitting there going, okay, well, what do you got? Hearts and souls into this competition. And yeah. It's just it's bizarre. Yeah. It's bizarre. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And yet uh, uh, we all know what it is. Right. 
Right. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Talk a little bit about the wedding dress in the forest. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, which is the other? Which is the other video? Well, the protagonist in that amazing production on that one. I love that one. By the way, oh, you do? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. How do you make someone look like they're walking slowly, but the but the your lips still sync perfectly with the music? Is that just kind of a little bit of magic? You sing at triple speed and then it's slowed down it's uh, shot in slow motion uh, so i'm that's the magic at- that's the magic behind welcome to behind the scenes i know it's a it's a it's a movie it's a video making secret yeah it's interesting okay well video experts that are listening to this are snickering that i'm a i'm a dummy but like i had no idea no i don't think you would even learn that unless you were like making so interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm like, wait. I was like watching your feet and your mouth. I'm like, is she and it was tripping me out? I mean, is she moving slowly or is that is she just actually moving normal slow? I, wow, it was trippy. It makes it feel very surreal. Yeah. And so anytime you can add something like that, it's movie magic, you know. Yeah, yeah. You're a performance artist. It was very interesting. I really liked it. So talk a little bit about that one too. Well, I mean, that protagonist of that song is just a total mess and not, you know, uh, I think the whole defense mechanism is I'm going to treat you badly so that you go away. But for some reason, you want more. So the people that stick around are the ones that want to be treated badly. And so I didn't want the. Mm. I, I wanted to sort of be a mess. And so we waited for a rainy day and I I had that dress in my collection mm-hmm. and it happened to fit. Mm. I thought I'm going to destroy this vintage wedding dress and wait for a rainy day. And Joshua Shoemaker, who's brilliant is going to shoot it. And he said, let's do it in one shot. So we went up into um, the forested Hills at my parents' place. And we, uh, we just practiced the shot and then we filmed two takes we took the second one and it took four hours. Wow. It was really cool. And I, I, we were trying to talk on the phone or email that one day and you said, Oh, I can't today because it's cloudy or something. And I just thought you were like shooting something because you know, when it's cloudy, you don't have to get complicated with the use of light. If you're doing different takes, I was like, Oh, okay. I didn't, then I saw the video and I'm like, Oh, cause it was raining. The rain. <laughs> That was actually the hardest. And then what? Part. Wait, if you had a wind, did you like give yourself like a week window that you were going to film this when it someday when it rained? We knew the rain was going to come on this specific day, and so we we narrowed down the day, and then it was like following the radar to catch the timing of the rain. Right, right. We kind of waited around, practiced, and then and then waited for the downpour. But the take we kept, it wasn't raining as hard as the other take. I really, my vision was just pouring rain. Right, but we right. Weren't able to, we weren't able to really, the take that we ended up liking, well, then you, uh, that Josh ended up liking. I think then you just would, I mean, I like it the way it is, because then you, I don't know, I think like, you know, it is what it is, you're not changing it. it, it you would have been completely drenched. This way you were wet and like you had the makeup running down and like it, it just, it worked. You can't see rain very well. <laughs> So that's what Josh was trying to say to me. It's raining, but you just can't see it very well on 
when he filmed. So it was when raining. When one film, what, rain doesn't show up well is what he's saying. Either way, so it didn't matter if it was raining hard, just had to need to be raining somewhat. Yeah, yeah we were waiting. So, you know, it, it, I I was happy with how, how quick it was. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, was, you know. Yeah. Super cool mm-hmm. stuff. Um, you've worked with Jenny Lewis a little bit, both this collaboration and um, either opening for her or you were in her band for a while. What Can you talk about that a little bit? She's amazing. Okay. I've seen her a couple times. I actually saw her in Mexico City in uh, late 2019. It was it was spectacular. She's so inventive, creative, and, 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 and different as in terms of live show. It was really cool. She's amazing. Um, yeah, I was in her band in 2015 for uh-huh. the Voyager Voyager era right. um, music. And I played keys and guitar and sang in her band. And, oh, cool. What yeah. was that? What was that like? And um, where, where'd you go? Um, all over the U S Japan, Australia. Uh, what was it like? It was awesome. Mm-hmm. It was easy in a certain way. Once I learned everything and, and sort of got into that role, it was really fun. You know, again, it's the same as opening. There's no pressure. You just kind of make sure the boss is happy. So I just wanted to make Jenny happy. And if she was happy, I was happy. And um, it's really fun. I got to play for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, um, everything was very taken care of. And so I got to uh, step into a large operation and, play a part in that and that was really fun to watch and I learned a lot about show business and you know the art of the set list and Hmm. um, you know just how a real professional show is run and it it definitely informed the way that I run my business for sure yeah what were some of those key factors like about the business itself that you that you felt you, you walked away with um, I think that it was, um, before that, I think I was a little more spontaneous with set lists and not really paying attention, watching Jenny very, very like intentionally knowing the flow of her set and throwing things in and saying that doesn't work. Let's move this around and being okay with like, repeating the same set over and over and over again on a tour mm-hmm. um, because it doesn't matter. Even if you saw the show twice, I don't think you would realize that the set was the same. So I was like very hmm. into it. Um, and then also just kind of seeing like just logistical things, you know, making sure that, you know, I pay people by the day instead of paying people by the show, um, which I love. Just like, you know, if you're working that day, no matter how many hours you work, you're going to get paid for the day. Cause you, you blocked it off your calendar. Just, just right. like little things like that. Just things how, that make how to sense. treat people the way you, I mean, taught you about how to treat people that you work with, which you said was important because you work with a lot of, you find, you know, team members to be an integral part of, of what's going on. Yeah. And asking people to be in your band is asking them to give up a lot of yeah. life at home and you know in the case of my band which is like a little baby middle class band we you know you're asking them to not make that much money and you're asking them to um go away from their partners and go away from any relationships they're working on and yeah. it's it's a lot of sacrifice and so if you 
uh, are doing it right, you're appreciating that and you're making the job as easy as possible for people that you work with. Um, and I think that's an important thing to do for people. I think me having the experience of being in a band and being on the other side of it and what that looks like uh, informs how I treat and come to understand the people that work in my band. Hmm. It's a good, it's a healthy perspective. It's like yeah. jobs. It's like what, job swapping. You said yeah. it's uh-huh. like when you go to a restaurant and your friends like acting like a jerk to the waiter and you're like, you know what? I think it's time for you to be the waiter and you to sit down and eat. <laughs> right. It's a reality show right there. There's five tables. Go. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So it, it helped inform your process and it was an important stepping stone for you to, to have that had, have had that experience. Absolutely. I mean, she's a super cool person and creative and fun to be around. And you find yourself in these celebrity situations around like amazing celebrities and you're just hanging out. Right. Right. How was it I mean, like to play in front of different. Bill Murray. Cool. Uh, oh, right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. What was it like to play with, to uh, to different different audiences and different cultures around the world? The same. Yeah. Yeah. Not not a beat is missed. Mm. One of the very interesting things about show business is that when you play a set, you can see. For me, this is in my band and in Jenny's band, mm-hmm. and I watch. You know, you tour with somebody for two months and you watch their show every night certain parts of your set capture people every single night the same line the audience goes ah oh. hmm. internationally the same song the audience goes ah so you begin to recognize patterns in how um in what people like and what they don't like mm-hmm. and so we're really very similar human beings really um, and that's part of tapping into sort of the construction of a show. So a yeah. live show is not just whatever songs you wanted to play a second before you create a, what's a good opener? What's good middle? Where are we going to go here before we take it down? Where are we going to go up here? And the momentum and the energy, I mean, you can feel that when you're on stage and you're playing a song and you're like, okay, I got to speed it up on the next one because people are hmm. not here. Interesting. You can pay attention to that and really tap in if you have the intuition to be aware of what's happening. So I now look at my show like that. I look at it as like a review. It's a show and you put it together and you have a way the set works. And you, when you first start a tour, you're testing a lot of stuff out, but by the sixth or seventh show, you're like, ah, this works. So we'll Hmm. stick to this. And we can, we can move some different songs in, in this part. And there are parts of this song where everyone gets to jam and this song can be eight minutes or two minutes. It can be 10 minutes, depending on what's going on, you know, right. So you create pockets of improvisation and places for people to be featured. And, and, and Jenny was really good about that. Like I had, she always gave me places to shine in the show. Like here, you come up to the mic and we'll do three part harmony, or you can, you could just sing this line on your own. And she understood the value of like giving everybody a little place to shine. And I think that's important too. Yeah. I remember that from her show, but, and, and um, 
Uh, but it's interesting the way and how you're describing the structure of the set list and the commonalities even globally of certain peaks and valleys or certain emotional situations that are just universal. I mean, that's the beauty of live show. It's the beauty of live music that it's this deep-seated human experience, collective experience that's common across the board. And you become an amoeba, right? You're the head, but everybody's connected. And that's why you can't live stream live music because you have to feel the vibration of the kick drum and you have to be there and people feed you and you feed them back. And this is like really actually, I think it's called kinesis, which is a spiritual kind of expression. It's where you sort of tap into something and everyone taps into something and you're doing it together as a group, but you're sort of pouring and you're giving. And so that's why when you're a performer and you play a show, you feel the most hungry and tired you've ever felt after the show because you give so much and it's not just physical, it's emotional, spiritual. Totally. There's this incredible exchange of energy between the fans and the performers for sure. Um, However, you know, we the, and we just got through this ridiculous period of just doing live stream after live stream. And as a music fan myself, it was a semi-acceptable alternative. It was the only alternative that there was. And then I'm like, yeah, I really miss a lot of different things about it. But fuck, in the absence of being able to be with everybody else, you know, I'd like to see, at least see bands that I like play live. I couldn't imagine the pandemic without <clears throat> Zoom, FaceTime, ways to see and connect. And even if it's not the same, yeah. it's something. And um, I just have been very, I think, patient throughout this whole thing. I've done a few things, uh, a few big projects virtually, but I, you know, I'm okay with taking a little bit of a break. Like I can see how fast time goes and, how, you know, waiting a a year and a half is okay. Yeah. It must've been nice to be able to be home with your son during that time for sure. Right. And have no, yeah. Cause in the beginning I was like still working when it made sense. And so I was used to leaving him for a couple of days and coming Mm -hmm. back. And now that we've had a year and a half together, I don't really know how easy it's going to be for me to leave him. So I don't, you know, I don't. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. Like, how's that going to look for you? I have no clue. Bring him along. He's not going to school yet. That's definitely the big conversation. It's going to take a lot of, okay, so you know how like before you take a toddler out, you have to get their snack and you have to get them dressed and you have to get their change of clothes and you have to Mm -hmm. have everything planned. Mm -hmm. I remember that (laughs) like it was yesterday. I'm explaining this for people who don't realize (laughs) everybody after this, podcast and be like, I'm never having kids. <laughs> oh, we haven't even woven any bad stories into this yet. <laughs> we'll, I think leave, that, we'll leave those out. I think touring with Julian is going to be a lot like that. It's going to take a lot of energy and preparation. And I don't think that I want him to be in the car the way that we are 
the whole time, but I think it'll be a kind of a jump between coming with us and then staying with grandma and papa and then coming back with us. Then. Yeah. Because buddy tours with you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit more difficult than if you had a, a partner that was stationary. Right. From that aspect, but you've got, you've got your folks at home, but it might be cool for Julian to be, cause it's mom and dad. That's kind of cool. Uh, to be with us, yeah. Yeah, on tour, right? Yeah, I think that what would have to happen is um, I have some friends who've done it, and I need to talk to them. Yeah, but yeah. I think it's going to be a matter of like lining up the right accommodations in every city and then also leaving really early in the morning so that if we need to take a two-hour break and go to the zoo or do something, right. that we have time. So it'll be just really exhausting, I think. Yeah, great, as long as you're looking forward to it. Well, I mean, touring is already exhausting, um, totally. but adding a child into the mix, I don't want to subject him to like, you know, an eight hour drive in a car. They get a Oh no, God, no, no, not without a couple breaks for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's, it's an interesting thing to, to think about, but yeah. I don't even put my dog in the car for that long. I mean, it's like, <laughs> Shows you I don't even like it's, I, I'm stopping and like hanging out, you know, a little bit. It shows you what. I just want everyone to consider that next time they go to see a show, just consider what that person did the day. They did something they wouldn't subject a child to. <laughs> right. 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 Um, and you're busy in home even when, even apart from Julian, because you have this vintage clothing business. And can you talk to me a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, sure. I have a vintage clothing store that's right behind Grimey's here uh-huh. in East and it's called anaconda vintage and it is a um, a socialist stream is where it? I have a ton of people vendors who sell their clothes there and work one day a week and um we all make what we sell and so it's a very great job for musicians and artists who have other things going on and they just want to you know, save beautiful vintage items from the landfill and recycle them um, and give them a new life with a new person. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and, and then also only have to come in, you know, half a day once a week. Oh, so you staff it up with those that bring the inventory, bring their own clothes to sell. And then when they're there, each person employs it for a portion of the, of the work week, but sells other people's stuff as well. Right. Just works in the store. Shared space. So my sister and I are the owners and we, uh, the vision is sort of, um, to have a, a sized, really easily shopped vintage store where you can say, okay, here's my measurements. I'm a size eight Mm. and you go to the eights and you can try stuff on. So it's very, uh, friendly to the shopper. And it's all mixed in. All the pants are together. The skirts are together. The shirts. However, we all have our own brands. And so we put our own tags on depending on who it belongs to. And you can come in and, uh, you know, uh, shop a bunch of different people's styles and visions. So we Mm -hmm. have like collective vision of style going there. We try to have a lot of everything. And so my sister and I, we, um, have our own brand and we sell our own clothes there, but yeah, so it's, it's nice. It's, um, it started out of this record store called Fond Object in East Nashville. 
I had a pile of clothing and vintage clothing in my basement from a friend of mine who used to take photos and give me clothes. And she said, can I store all my clothes there? I said, sure. And then I started thrifting when I was on tour and we had this massive collection. And one of the owners of that store fond object, Coco, she stayed the night or she stayed at my place while I was on tour. And she said, what do you do with all these clothes? Like, do you want to sell them? And I said, sure. So (laughs) that started this room in this record store called Rags and Digs. So for years, I would just go on the road, garbage bags full of vintage, bring them home, slap a tag on them, throw them in this room. And that was a a side hustle for me. Mm -hmm. And then they closed. I, uh, my sister was already selling online and my sister and I got together and we, we made this little socialist dream. Why do you keep calling them socialist? Because everybody puts in the work and everybody has infinite potential. Uh, okay. Yeah. In terms of like, who's yeah. Right. A co-op sort of co-op. co-op. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Socialist co-op though. It's a co-op. <laughs> it's what? Except there's no board. A co-op technically has a board of directors. My sister and I are the board of directors. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, that sounds cool. That's 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 great. That's great stuff. Um, uh, well, so thanks so much for being here, Tristan. This was great, and I can't wait for the, the live stream. And um, you know, I hope to be there. And um, it was uh, it was cool. It was like. You know, Roadcase, of course, is really, and I'm really happy to 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 sponsor it and support it, and I'm I'm excited for the release of this new album. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you, and um, again, I'm very grateful for you and uh, all you're doing. So, yeah, Tristan well, the Night Away too. <sighs> right on, right on. We will be Tristing the Night. Tristing is it Tristing or Tristing? <laughs> we'll be Tristing. <laughs> I mean, you'll be Tristan the night away. Let's like, okay. I've, I've hammered that home enough. Just listen to that song and then tell me if you hear Tristan or Tristan. Okay. All right. You're going to close with that. All right. Thanks Tristan for being here. This was really fun. Thank you. Bye. Okay, that was Tristan, Nashville-based artist, and I was so happy to have her here. Um, She just has this spot-on emotional clarity that was informed by her study of psychology and just a brilliant artistic brain and uh, such an intriguing musical vision. Uh, Her new album, Aquatic Flowers, uh, just came out, and it's just a brilliant work. And as she said, she really has great people around her. Um, she is a natural collaborator. Uh, like she said, it's a DIO operation, not a DIY operation. It's do it ourselves, not do it yourselves. And, um, I was really lucky to have, uh, been involved in really just a tiny part of her album release show and Roadcase sponsored it. And I want to thank her for the opportunity to have been able to do that. It was a lovely show. It was great to see all that collaboration. Uh, 
working uh, live and um, her, her band is phenomenal uh, and the people that she surrounds herself with are also wonderful and I was lucky to have met uh, quite a few of those individuals and that was great um, she loves touring and we talked a lot about that um, loves to travel and kind of live that nomadic existence and uh probably a little bit of that was due to her studies and travels in italy and having lived in rome uh briefly while she was a student which i was really surprised and excited to find out that she did that because i studied in italy too uh as a student many years ago and i even lived there with my family more recently and uh that was a very um important part of my educational upbringing and clearly it informed Tristan as well. And uh, parenting is another thing that I have in common, uh, that Tristan and I have in common, not that that's uh, such an incredibly unique thing, but you know, I talk to a lot of artists on this show, uh, and a uh, few of them have children, and um, it's we talked a little bit about how that changed her workflow and some of her focus, and of course, uh, it alters your priorities a little bit but um you know it's it's all for the best and she's raising him with uh her husband buddy who uh is also a wonderful human being and i was lucky to have met him at the show um so i want to thank everyone for tuning in for this episode of road case and i want to thank uh, tristan so much for taking the time to sit down with me on this episode of road case Thanks again so much for listening. And I'd like to encourage everyone to get involved with Roadcase. You can do so in a number of different ways. You can email me at info at roadcasepod.com with questions, comments, and even suggestions for guests. Or you can follow us on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're at RoadcasePod. And we have a YouTube channel called Roadcase Podcast. And if you are able to and like to support Roadcase, we have a Patreon site at patreon.com slash roadcasepod. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform. And if you could please rate and review the podcast while you're there, that would be great. So I want to thank Waltzer for this awesome theme music that we have. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to Roadcase. We have a lot of great episodes coming up, so I'll see you on down the road. Mm -hmm.